I'm John Brandt, Director of Professional Practices here at ISACA, and this is ISACA Podcast. Joining me today are Rex Johnson and Tony D'Arcangelo over at CAI. I came across Rex uh, during a presentation at ISACA's Digital Trust World up in Boston in May. Was really intrigued by the presentation that they did and super excited that both these gentlemen can join us today for a podcast on a really important topic. Rex, would you like to introduce yourself? Certainly. Uh, my name is Rex Johnson. I'm an executive director with CAI. I lead the cybersecurity advisory practice. My name is Tony D'Arcangelo. I'm a senior service delivery manager within Neurodiverse Solutions at CAI. Uh, I manage the day-to-day operations of various client partnerships we have through the portfolio. So Rex, um, you know, going back to, to May when I first came across, uh, you know, and uh, sat in on your session and we had a quick conversation afterwards, uh, you co-presented a presentation regarding neurodiverse talent in cybersecurity. What prompted your respective efforts? Well, there, there are a couple of things. Uh, cybersecurity, of course, is a growing field and there is a large need for individuals uh, that can provide that. Um, there's a lot of statistics out there. And I think when I presented on that one, um, there was, uh, I think, 956 people in the United States alone that were employed with 464,000 uh, openings at the time. Uh, as of today, I went to the same numbers. There's 1.129 million uh, that are employed. So the employment's gone up, but the needs gone up as well. And there's 663,000 uh, openings at this time. That's just in the United States. Um, so obviously there's a need for that. And quite candidly, I have Asperger's syndrome. That is a form of autism spectrum disorder. And I have had a interesting career learning how to navigate that in a neurotypical world. And part of the reason is not only talking about the opportunities, but the fact that a lot of the things that, uh, that I have as being someone who is neurodivergent, uh, a lot of those traits and capabilities are really great for IT and cybersecurity. I wanted to share this with other people that might be looking at that, as well as others who may realize that uh, there's a great opportunity uh, for people that are neurodiverse to have a great career in cybersecurity. Yeah, that was one of the things that really intrigued me about the presentation. And, you know, as I sit there and I and I look at this, I think that we acknowledge that the stigma that's out there, especially with anything regarding mental health. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and I, too, you know, I, I have you know, I've, I've battled with uh, depression and anxiety and I'm, and I'm very open about that. Right. Um, so I guess the question, you know, my follow up question to you right now is, um, you know, obviously to, our own willingness to talk about it adds a lot of value to it. But I, I'm concerned, is there still this maybe a, a, a uh, an old belief among, especially within like the HR groups and whatnot, to kind of not put that out in main space and not address it up front. I think there was in the past. Um, and if I can share my own experiences, so 30 plus years ago, I was a second lieutenant in the United States Army. And obviously, I got a college degree. I passed what the Army considered you needed to do to become an officer. I was commissioned as a lieutenant. But um, at that time, I knew that I was struggling with this, and it wasn't something I would typically talk about because 
30 years ago, I probably would have had a very different military career if I was open about it. Now, great example of this is you talk about, uh, I remember uh, back then we wore a thing called a battle dress uniform or BDU, which were fatigues. And kind of an example of the challenges I had is I had a major that would come up to me and said, Lieutenant, it looked like you slept in your uniform. And I was like, okay, really didn't know what to do with that. What he was trying to say to me is you need to press your uniform. It's, it, it looks sloppy. And every time he said that to me, it never connected. I wasn't able to make that assumption. You know, obviously that was part of the challenge I had, but fortunately a fellow Lieutenant uh, pulled me aside and translated what he was trying to say. And I haven't had a unpressed uniform since. And I had a 30 plus year in the military, uh, you know, got all the way to Lieutenant Colonel. But if I had been open about being neurodivergent back then, which they didn't have that term to call it, or if I had been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder back then, I would have had a very short military career. But now we are seeing uh, more of an understanding that this is not uh, an uncommon thing, not to use a double negative, but basically, there are a lot more people that are coming out. And I've only recently started being open about it uh, within the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, and again, you know, I appreciate your your openness. And I, I actually had, you know, a similar experience. Uh, you know, I too was in the military, retired, you know, Navy. And, you know, I was in the intelligence community. And, you know, as you can, you know, imagine, like those, it was taboo up front. And I can look back, you know, at different times that I did talk to, to folks. And it was, you know, and it kind of was covered under the auspice of like, um, phase of life shifts and whatnot. So it kind of got subdued and it was only over the course of the years where, you know, we, we've kind of acknowledged that it's not as horrible as anybody ever made it out to be, right? It's just, it, you know, it's life, right? For a lot of things. So whether or not, you know, it, it's something where it's organic or it's environmental, you know, c conditioning, uh, I hope, wholeheartedly agree with everything you said. And, and I do that, think that there's a lot of value in in it being spoken about and advocated for. Um, Tony, anything you want to add to that? Uh, similar to Rex and yourself, I'm also neurodiverse. Uh, I've struggled with um, social anxiety, depression, sensory issues, and um, OCD uh, for a long time, obviously growing up. The term neurodiverse was never was never used. Uh, certainly wasn't used in a professional sense. Um, I have three children and a stepson, all of which are also neurodiverse. So that certainly led me to get involved in uh, with CAI and neurodiverse solutions. Um, through many years of working, though, I've learned so much about neurodiverse individuals and how their skills really apply to so many of the fields and. Uh, and roles that we partner with different companies for. Well, very good. Um, so another question came to mind here, and for, for the both of you, you know, there's a lot of emphasis regarding very different pathways, right, in increasing the supply to meet current demand within cybersecurity. And obviously the work that you all are doing is helping to, to address, you know, a portion of that. Do you feel like current DEI initiatives are, are including 
the neurodiverse? Do, do we feel like that's is covered as part of that or or no, is it being treated separate to all of those uh, you know initiatives to basically uh, to be a more inclusive workforce? Uh, I believe it's being it's more inclusive today. Again, you look at the skill sets required for cybersecurity that the neurodiverse community has. So uh, data analysis, pattern recognition, critical thinking, uh, the ability to memorize and, uh, you know, really call out bad actors. It really applies to cybersecurity. Uh, again, I think I've certainly seen a growing number of organizations that are willing to look to the neurodiverse community to fill roles in this area. One thing I found is I got into the corporate environment and uh, when I went into IT, which was a great uh, opportunity for some of the same reasons. But as I realized I was, you know, had skills in data analysis, the pattern recognition, cybersecurity became a natural transition for me. And as I've been in this field, I see a lot more people that are also neurodiverse. And what the neurodivergent person can bring is exactly those skills I've talked about. Uh, people that are, uh, Neurodivergent are very good at being security uh, operations center analysts. They're exceptionally great at threat intel. Oh my goodness, the amount of detail and you serving in the intelligence. I'm sure uh, you've had some folks that were that really just focused on that and did some great things. Um, you know, vulnerability and penetration testing, a lot of things on that incident response, especially if you have to work with digital forensics. These are things that the the abilities that you have as someone who is neurodivergent, uh, it really allows you to, to amplify and use those in, in the best case scenario. And it benefits everyone else because a lot of this is very tedious work and some might find it very mind numbing, but you know, uh, a lot of neurodivergent people get very excited about this kind of thing. And that passion leads to them even being better at it. You know, that that's a great point there. And I, you know, and, a common theme, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, addressing this large demand is oftentimes, you know, people uh, will say the, the neurotypical are attracted towards, you know, the things that market a little bit better, the, the, the sexy stuff, right? You know, um, pen testing, ethical hacking, you know, anything in that realm. But, you know, and you're a data guy, right? You 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 were uh kind of rattled off some statistics. You looked at uh, you know, potentially cyberseek, you know, at the beginning of this or other sources. And we know that the the primary need that's out there right now is what we would say is more on on the defense side, right? The blue team, more SOC related, analytical it's, you know, some might call it boring or whatnot, but at the end of the day, that is the, that's the primary need that's out there right now. So it is not, you know, so not surprising analytical related fields, you know, are make a good segue as well for folks to come over into this. So, uh, you know, you really dug into, um, you know, where, the neurodivergent, their, their strengths in the technical stuff. And, and there was a, something that came up in the presentation where that, you know, regarding soft skills. And so while a lot of emphasis is on the technical skills within the workforce, 
Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of research out there, Isaka amongst others, that it can that repeatedly affirms the criticality of soft skills. Now, soft skills is pretty broad, right? At the end of the day, it could be communications, analytical reasoning, it's critical thinking, these things that you, we've already spitballed a bunch of them in this conversation. Um, what are the where, where is the primary, I guess, barrier for the neurodivergent coming into the workforce right now? What have you seen as a primary barrier with, with job positions or, you know, um, understanding um, may, maybe the, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? the translation of, of skills and maybe uh, expectations? I, I think the biggest barrier for uh, the neurodiverse community is the interview process. It's historically tailored for neurotypical individuals. Uh, neurodiverse Solution takes a pretty unique approach. As an example, uh, with our interview process, we do something called a talent discovery session. It's a very hands-on five-day approach where we're working with each individual to not only assess their skill sets, but really try to identify the right role for the right person. Um, you know, it, it's getting away from that traditional panel interview style. Uh, it allows us to, again, work hands-on at the individual level, exercise patience and empathy, uh, especially when there's a delayed response or communication struggles, which is, again, not uncommon in this community. So, uh, you know, again, everything we do about that with, within our town discovery session is built around supporting each individual participating and finding the right role for them. Traditional interviews are not like that, right? It's very specific, uh, down to the skill set, very tailored questions. Um, it's a lot more rigid in nature than I think our, our, our form is much more adaptive. Right. I, I never had a job where a handshake, uh, that how good my handshake was, contributed to my success on the role. Right. You, you know, what you described there is, I love the approach that you all are taking. And, and I, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of frustration among app, job applicants, you know, with the number of interviews. And, you know, and so you need to meet with this person about this, but, you know, that's just more kind of, it's not really a deep dive, right? Then you're going to, you know, and, 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 in a market that we know that there's a, you know, we message that there's all these job openings that are out there to have to go through three plus interviews or even two, you know, seems a little ridiculous now, right now. Now, if I put on a business hat, I understand that a bad hire is an expensive hire. I, I totally understand that, but it does, does beg the question, you know, where can we be better? And it sounds like the process that you have is, you know, is definitely helping that. Um, Tony, something you just said there, you talk about empathy and, and it's something that I, I've not got off this, this soapbox because in 2022, Isaka State of Security Research, when we asked what the top needed soft skills were in their organization, honesty and empathy fell all the way at the bottom which at the time was disturbing to me if I just look at the fact that, you know, uh, 
cybersecurity is a business enabler at the end of the day. So you, you know, your goal is to understand, you know, um, business unit leader needs help come up with solutions, be empathetic to what it is they're trying to accomplish and whatnot. But then now, you know, already in our conversation here, now I'm like, okay, the criticality of it's that much more, because if, if we, if we're saying that empathy is not important, not only does it have a, an operational per, per, uh, component to it, but then there's this, then there's the human capital component of it, especially when you've got diverse teams and, you know, the, the neuro uh, divergent team member and, and Rex, what you had described, like if somebody uses sarcasm and it does not translate well, all of a sudden, like now we're, we're really adversely affecting the work environment. And, and there's some other decent research that's out there about, you know, uh, the employee experience and in, in what's happening there. So as part of the work that you're doing, do you, do you find yourself having to spend time with the hiring managers or whoever brings you in to talk about the importance of the empathy and leading, you know, this demographic and, and, you know, and how they could both be successful in the relationship. We absolutely do. Um, for each of our engagement, a, a certified team lead is assigned part of one of the main roles of that team. And in addition to mentoring and supporting uh, their neurodiverse staff is working with the client management, ensuring they understand what it means to work with the neurodiverse community and building the infrastructure so they can manage a neurodiverse workforce over the long term. Uh, it certainly doesn't happen overnight, but again, we we collaborate with all the organizations we partner with to make sure they they truly understand what that means and how to best support and encourage a neurodiverse associate. Yeah, a thought just came to mind here, and it's you know, and there's lots of great initiatives, and, and sometimes when you think about you know, there's lots of good ideas. And sometimes when you go to execute on them, you know, they come across as the wrong way. And, and I'm seeing a lot of, there's a lot of value here. So I, I, I have two questions. One is, and this is really a lack of my uh, unknowing, how large, you know, even a, a swag here, you know, whether it just be in the United States or maybe if you have any global estimates, how large do we think that the neurodiverse population is? Do Is there any estimates on how large of a number that is? Um, I, I've heard, certainly heard various numbers, but it, it and it's growing every year. Um, I've heard up to 40%. Again, I don't know if that is the, the true current standard, but it, it it's grown every year, and I've been involved with, with this portfolio and CAI for nine years. And every year, that number ticks up more and more. So it's definitely a growing population. Yeah, I think we talked about uh, over 1 billion individuals globally identify as neurodivergent. But I think the statistic you're thinking about is where does that employment range? And that's where that can run on an adult as high as 30 or 40 percent. Um, th the thing is, you have to keep in mind that you can't take a neurodivergent person and, and stereotype them. Uh, everybody's a unique individual. And in my case, even though I had Asperger's syndrome growing up and knew I had to deal with it, 
I was also very much an extrovert and was more outgoing. So there was a lot of opportunities for me to, uh, to learn. Uh, I gave you the example of my, you know, my fatigues being wrinkled, where if the major had just spoken directly to me and told me, hey, press your uniform, I would have received that. And over the top course of my career, I've learned certain skills to, to really uh, overcome some of the challenges I have to help me be better at paying attention and help uh, uh, also having an understanding. But I think the thing that's important here is not only does the program need to be out there to help people that are uh, neurodiverse, but also people need to feel safe where they work. And that hasn't always been the case. Uh, and we're now at a point where you can be open about uh, being a neurodivergent individual without the the shaming that you might have gotten from the past. Well, and I'm glad you, with the explanation and, and some, some of the, the dialogue there, because that was my next point here is, you know, you, we don't want to stereotype, you know, anybody in, but it, I'm also, it's like, how do we, I, you know, how do we as a, as a, as a workforce, as a nation empower and do a better job at the awareness piece of, of occupations, right? Like, and, and you know, you all, you know, collectively, we, we had to take an aptitude test, right? To, to go into the military. And whereas, you know, our model here in the U.S. is, is, diff, is very different. It does, you know, th th there are opportunities out there for folks to, you know, whether they're, you know, formal or informal, you know, there was that book, What Colors Your Parachute, and, and type those types of things to kind of drive interests and capabilities and whatnot. Uh, because the world is changing so much. All, all occupations are, be, are being in, you know, are just evolving. Every, you know, every part of the world has been affected by technology, but there, there's certain things that, you know, levitate now that doesn't mean like someone's you know you could be very good at something but if you're not interested in it, it it's not a good fit right like at the end of the day so i i guess that you know and these conversations become important because i acknowledge is power at the end of the day and we're only as good as you know the situations that you know in in the types and groups of people that we've ever that been uh we've worked in the situations we've been exposed to and whatnot and you know so for all of our listeners across the globe you know they're passionate practitioners they probably are involved in you know in any number of programs up you know early life late life type stuff how do we you know is there harm in in advocating or do we, you know, or is it just we, we need to, to take the approach of just increasing the awareness of um, and the benefit of any kind of analytical positions or, or that work and, and where they would be kind of suited towards? I, I think continued communication and advocacy is everything. The more we talk about the neurodiverse community, the more that we express areas that they thrive in, the skill sets that they have, all the various roles that they can be successful in. The more we get that out there, the broader our message becomes. 
And by doing that, I think you're going to attract more and more organizations to broaden DEI efforts and hire more and more neurodiverse individuals. You know, Tony, I, I love that point there because it's one of the things that that's my a personal view of mine is I, I think je, with a broad brush statement, I think DEI initiatives are 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 typically thought of much more narrow than they really need to be, right? Like, um, and, and I think that's that's that whole piece. I think the inclusivity piece of it, to me, that's the biggest. That's where the emphasis should be, you know, and that's you know one person's opinion here because it's not. Then it's, you know, the the concern with with any of it, it it's the apple the practical application, how you're going to execute on a program, and then if if the emphasis is on filling a quota that return on investment reasonably is going to be a lot less than the inclusivity piece of it which is it's agnostic of race gender creed medical condition you know where you live rural suburbia any of that stuff um So yeah, the, you know, the continued conversation that, and again, you know, I, I couldn't, I was so excited about th that you guys actually went to the table and actually had this conference presentation, you know, truthfully, because it was the first of its kind that I had personally picked up on. And I, and I still don't think that there's enough conversation surrounding it all. Um, so Speaking of soft skills, right? I, so I found it, you know, when we were originally planning this um, this session, I found an interesting article, you know, uh, last year talked, uh, you know, that said stop asking neurodivergent people to stop to change the way they communicate, and most of it seemed pretty straightforward to me, but. I, you know, that's one person's perspective, and you all are actually, you, you know, you're out there on the front lines helping, you know, uh, to basically uh, put the proverbial, you know, butts in seats as we, you know, you'd call from a staffing perspective. Um, what barriers are, are, are prominent right now out there in the workforce? Let's just, let's throw those out there. And because I think that awareness is important and it, part of it could just be unconscious bias or, or unconscious activity on the behalf of some. Um, maybe it's not, I don't know, but you know, I think it's worthwhile spending some time there. If I may, I did read uh, J.D. Goulet's article and he, he definitely is someone who has, has some of the same str struggles that I have had. Uh, but when you think about some of the long communication, Communication is is a learned behavior. You know, we learn a new language. We learn how to uh, communicate with others. One of the things I had to learn and pick up on was body language. It was not something that's intuitive to me, and it's something I do now. And people seem to think I'm very good at it, and I pick up on things even neurotypical people don't because I've started studying it like code. But the thing is, everybody wants to be heard, and they want to. Uh, they don't want to be misunderstood. And it is very frustrating when you communicate something and you think you say one thing and someone uh, through their filters interpret it as something entirely different. So uh, I appreciate the article. Uh, I think a lot of times, just as in the example I gave, uh, going back to the, the uniform story, I just needed someone to translate. And sometimes once that translation happens, 
that really takes a lot of the barriers down and you can start with that. But um, those are kind of some of the same things is we got to realize we don't all communicate the same way. Even neurotypical people communicate different than others. And you could say something uh, totally be misinterpreted uh, by someone else as well. You know, I, I can't help but sit here and think about, you know, when we talk about communication at large and we, and we, we look at the impact that technology has had on society, right? And, and the non, the lack of impersonal communication that, that's transpiring. Like, uh, you know, I, on one hand, I'm, you know, I wonder what, whether the, the neurotypical are actually more disadvantaged at this point with that moving forward because because to your point body language matters um you know and you know texting right you you don't get texting email or whatnot like tone and emphasis and, and all of that is very tough to come across, right? So I, I have zero illusions that soft skills will, will fall as, a, as an important factor within the cybersecurity workforce, but I also have zero illusions that this is limited to us. Like, I, you know, through, through my own studies and interactions with folks, this, this is a challenge that's plaguing all occupations right now, and it, and it seems to be getting worse over the years. Um, that begs the question with an aging workforce to which cybersecurity is, you know, what, what responsibilities are on hiring managers to, to, to kind of pick up the torch here and, and to make sure that we're seeing sizable gains with knocking down the barriers, uh, for neurodivergent individuals. Um, recognizing that if we we've grown pretty cust, uh, accustomed to not dealing with with people right at the end of the day and the pandemic obviously didn't help much in that regard um when we were doing a lot of virtual stuff i think the responsibility goes beyond just the hiring managers it starts at the top with the ceos and building organizations that support a diverse workforce educating your entire organization that they need to be innovative and out of the box thinkers. But I appreciate, you know, that point there, Tony, um, the CEOs from the top down is, is obviously, you know, important, you know, especially with your larger organizations, the reality is, you know, that hiring managers is pretty much that first line, right. On a lot of things. Absolutely. It does start there. Uh, you have to have a hiring manager that, is open to the idea of working with uh, a neurodiverse individual and understands what that truly means. And then working within their orgs, understand that all their subordinates understand what that means. Uh, you know, again, you know, communication, collaboration, it, it's ultimately gonna determine the success of this area. Well, I wanna say I'm grateful to be at a time when uh, a lot of, uh, we've come aware of uh, neurodivergent people and their talents and what they can offer. And having had to go through most of my career hiding that, it's great to be able to talk about that and be open about that. And, and I think as we, we look ahead, uh, 
there are a lot of opportunities, not just to think, okay, I can put this person in a data analysis role and they'll stay there the rest of their life. Uh, there have been other people. There, there was a three-star Naval Admiral who came out saying that he was on the uh, autism spectrum. He made three stars and he was a leader and he was in charge of people and he was very good at strategy and leadership, but he was a neurodivergent individual. So there's not only other opportunities for them to have great jobs, there's opportunities for them to be leading and helping others. And one of the things I want to do is share my experiences with others and help them be successful in their careers. I hope our listeners got a lot out of this, and I hope it's the beginning of many conversations and communications on the topic here. Um, it's going to take a village, right? We all know that, you know, there, there's some, you know, the, the size estimates of, of how many we, people we need are, are pretty excessive. Um, you know, uh, the accuracy of that only only time will tell, right? We, you know, but at the end of the day, we, we do know uh, unequivocally that there are not enough folks for every open position right now. And fit, Phil, what you, you, you talked about, Tony, right? The right person for the right position. That needs to, we need to be leading forward with that right now uh, in, in all regards. And, um, and opportunities and, and, you know, an initiative such as, you know, the good work that you guys are doing out there, CAI, uh, you know, it, it's going to help chip away at that, uh, you know, how fast it scales. Ultimately, that's going to be up to industry, um, you know, to make some some adjustments on their end. But this is a really good conversation. I really appreciate both of you joining me today for this conversation. I'm John Brandt, and this is ISACA Podcast.